Today's reading is Matthew 18, uh, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell them to the church. If he refuses to listen to even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and in a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth shall be loosened in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For, when, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. The greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world finds simply unbelievable. That was author Brendan Manning, and there's much in his words. Followers of Christ who fail to live like they're following Christ, are a major stumbling block to the world believing in the truth of who Jesus is. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And church, the solution to the problem is what none of us wants, but all of us need. Authority. Nowadays, authority is a dirty word. You know, we're told to question authority, to resist authority, to throw off oppression. Our post-Christian society is choking on the idea of authority itself, especially power inequality between groups of people. They say that this is the problem in the world. But friends, the Bible doesn't let any group of people or any individual off the hook. The problem is not an issue of authority or power dynamics between groups of people. The problem that we find and that we encounter today is a problem in the human heart. Every human heart. We do have an authority problem, and that problem is not between groups of people. That problem is within us, because every single one of us resists authority. You see, every single one of us has some authority, whether you're a child and all you have is authority over the domain of your bedroom or you merely rule over the thoughts that are inside your head. Every one of us has some kind of authority, some kind of a power. And the biblical truth that we're going to find is that whether you have much or little authority, every single one of us has misused the authority that we possess in some way. So every one of us stands guilty before God. In the words of one author, the Bible doesn't let us off the hook so easily. It indicts all of us for misusing our authority. It teaches that Adam's bite out of the fruit and Pharaoh's spilling blood are differences of quantity, not quality. Pharaoh simply swung a much bigger hammer. Friends, all of us have authority. And all of us have misused our authority and our power, and all of us stand guilty. Friends, so the problem in this world is not the existence of authority itself. The fundamental problem in this world is not the issue of authority between groups of people. The authority problem that we encounter in this world is that whether you have much or little, all of us 
have misused our authority. We've misused our authority because we have all failed to submit our authority to a higher authority. See, right authority is authority that's submitted. Now, I know I'm going to get a little bit philosophical in this sermon, but bear with me because I think that this is important to us understanding what Jesus is teaching here. You see, our problem is authority unsubmitted. Now, what is authority? Now, power is the ability or the capability to do something, but authority is the right to do it, the license to use that power. For example, my 16-year-old daughter, Abigail, has her learner's permit and now over 44 hours of driving experience. So she now has the power, the capacity to drive the car, and she does it really well. But the problem is she does not yet have the authority to do that on her own. She has not yet been granted the authority to use her newly developed power or capacity to drive. So she has power, but she doesn't yet have authority. Or imagine a man who has the power, the capacity to cut you with a knife and take your money. If that man has power and no authority to do those things, he's a thief and an assailant. But if that man has both power and authority to cut you with a knife and take your money, he's probably a surgeon. You see, the difference there is authority. Both had the power to do it, but only one had the authority to do it. So authority is not only power. Friends, authority is the moral right or the license to act on that power. And our human problem is that we are not rightly submitted. Our authority is not rightly submitted to a higher authority. Because you see, no human authority is absolute. All human authority has limits. All authority is supposed to be submitted to some higher authority. For example, once Abigail does get her license, she will have the authority to drive the car, but she still has to submit to the authority of the traffic laws. And if she violates one of them, then the policeman has been given the authority to pull her over and give her a ticket. Because she, even though she now has authority, that authority must be submitted to a higher authority. And in the same way, the police officer that holds her accountable, he too is submitted to a higher authority. Because when he pulls her over for speeding, he cannot then execute an unwarranted search and seizure. That's not in his authority. So even then, his authority is submitted to a greater and higher authority. The point is, is that all human authority is both limited and it's accountable. So, friends, good, healthy human authority is always rightly submitted to a higher authority. Does that make sense? Are you still with me here? I know we're doing a little philosophy here today. So our human problem is that we refuse to rightly submit our authority to any higher authority. You see, our problem, church, is individualism. Now, individualism isn't being an island or liking to be alone. Individualism is the thought that nobody has the right to tell me what to do or who to be. I am the unquestioned and unrivaled authority in my life. And friends, individualism, it's the air that we breathe today. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Don't let anyone tell you what you can or can't do. 
Disney motivational posters, graduation speakers, and the whole larger culture has been feeding us this trash for years. And we've been eating it up and believing it. The spirit of individualism feeds our anti-authority attitudes and our resistance to good and right authority and our resistance to submitting our own authority to a higher authority. However, this has left us all vulnerable. It's left us vulnerable because, friends, our problem is authority unsubmitted. Human authority is not supposed to be absolute. Human authority, to be healthy and remain healthy, needs to be submitted to a higher authority. You know, when the people of Israel embraced individualism, when they were all left to their own authority, it was utterly disastrous. The book of Judges is a dark and a depraved book. And it summarizes all that happened in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king. There was no submission to a higher or a right authority. So everyone proudly paraded around declaring nobody has the right to tell me what to do or who to be. I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to be true to myself. But friends, the book of Proverbs warns us not once, but actually twice, word for word. In Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25, there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. So follow your heart right to destruction. Because we were never meant to be the ultimate authority. Our authority must be rightly submitted to a higher authority if it's going to remain healthy and right and fruitful. And you see, God in his goodness, God in his wisdom has given authority to help us. You know, our authority to flourish must be submitted to higher healthy authority. The very final words of King David are recorded for us. It's fascinating. Second Samuel chapter 23, it says, these are the final words of King David. These are the last words before he died. And what did he have to say to the people of Israel? David speaks about the purpose and the result of right authority in his words. Second Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. David writes, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, submitted to right authority, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Friends, just as the sun and the rain make the ground productive and healthy and flourishing and fruitful, the Lord compares good authority to that, to the sun and the rain that makes fruitful and flourishing. Because for human authority to remain healthy and fruitful, it must be submitted to a higher authority, to a right authority. And so it is, friends, that in today's passage, we find that Christ has given authority to his church. And the authority is meant for the health and the flourishing of God's people. 
And for those who were not here last week when we began studying this passage, I truly encourage you, go back and watch on YouTube or listen to the recording of the sermon so you can understand the full context of everything that we're talking about today. But as we established last week, friends, no one, there is no one who is more likely to be deceived and led astray by your sin than you. None of us here does things because we think they're wrong. We all do things because we justify them, we rationalize them, we minimize, we compromise, we allow ourselves to be deceived into believing that our sin is not really sin, or it's not really that serious, or because of some complicating element, we're actually justified in doing whatever it is we're doing. As Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And that was what we established last week. God, in his goodness, has given us the gift of one another. So that if we are deceived and led away by our sin, if we think that we in our wisdom are wise, we're actually fools. And he's given us those to give us advice and lead us home. As we saw last week, the Lord's given us the gift of and the responsibility for one another so that we might win back our brother and gain back our sister. So as James chapter 5 verse 20 promises, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So that's our call. That's the gift of one another, the gift so that if we are deceived and wandering, we might call one another home. But it leaves us with a question. What happens if we entreat our brother, but he refuses? What happens if we approach our sister, but she resists? As Proverbs says, it's the fool who refuses to listen to advice, declares that his authority and his understanding are ultimate and absolute. I know better. No one has the right to tell me what to do. Don't judge me. So what do we do then? What do we do when that is the response? And Jesus says in verse 16, But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Jesus is simply following the provisions of the Old Testament law here. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a man shall be put to death, but no one shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witness must be the first in putting him to death, and then the hands of all the people. So, friends, notice the seriousness of these um, instructions to Israel and the severity of them. First, there had to be more than one witness. Why? So that things didn't just devolve into an issue of preference or an interpersonal offense or a personal vendetta of one person against another. And secondly, notice the warning that is given in Deuteronomy to the people of Israel about bearing witness falsely or carelessly. They say that the Lord says to his people, those who bear witness will also be the first one whose hands will take up stones if the person is found guilty. So if you are careless, if you are false in your accusations, you are making yourself guilty before God, not only of false witness, but potentially of murder. 
church. When Jesus calls here for two or three witnesses, he's not calling them together, though, the good news. He's not calling them together to be the first to cast stones. When he says two or three witnesses, he's saying, you need two or three others. Let them be the first to prayer, the first to guidance, the first to wisdom, the first to discernment, the first to grace. Jesus' words emphasize that such matters are so serious and they're so severe. We need to bring together others lest we make a mistake on this. Because healthy human authority is never absolute. It needs to be submitted and accountable. Bring together the church in their authority. And this is why those who are called to lead in such matters, elders and leaders, are so severely warned in the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Church, all authority has to give an account and has to give an account to a much higher authority. Authority is given, but accountability is always demanded. And the scriptures tell us that those who lead in exercising authority, those who bear witness to such questions, those who judge such matters, will give an account to God for the use of that authority. And church, I and those who have served you here as elders will one day stand before God and give account for every one of you. I will give account for how I practiced and how I failed to practice the authority that Christ has given me. Did I wield the authority in service to him or in service to my own ego? Were there times that I was silent when I should have spoken? Are there times that I spoke when I should have been silent? Did I allow sheep to wander? Did I allow wolves to prowl amongst us? Did I commit spiritual malpractice by allowing sinful cancer to grow in the soul of individuals or in the soul of this body? Church, if anyone tells you that leadership is glorious, they are naive. Leadership is a terrible responsibility. And it is one that has kept me up at night at times, that has poured forth from my very soul rivers of tears and has driven me time and time and time again to my knees in prayer. Because I am going to answer to the Lord for how I used my authority. And if it was submitted to His authority. And to help you to flourish and to follow. But church, notice that in the same passage in Hebrews, each one of you is going to answer to the Lord to how you responded to the authority of those who've been given to shepherd the flock. To those who resist authority by refusing church membership. Those who speak secret words of slander, nurture a root of bitterness, or sow seeds of discontent against past or present actions of leadership. Those who pridefully cling to the belief, I understand better and I see more clearly than they do. All of us, friends, are all going to stand before God and answer. Every one of us. We're going to answer for our authority. Was it submitted to a higher authority? Was it submitted as we are all called to submit? Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Church, Christ has given His church authority. 
and to stand against the gathered church's authority should for any one of us be a terrible and a fearful thing. And Jesus declares here, if one persists, if one persists in standing against the authority of the church, if one continues in unrepentance, if one stubbornly wanders, deceived in sin, and, know, and that, that one is calling into question their identity as one of Jesus' followers. Jesus continues in verse 17. It says, if he refuses, if he refuses to listen to them, meaning the two or three witnesses, Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Church, as I said last week, the problem in our lives is not the sin in our lives. Because none of us will be perfect on this side of eternity. The greatest problem in our lives is not sin in our lives. The greatest problem is a lack of repentance in our lives. Church, the gospel, the good news is that there is no sin so heinous that you cannot confess it, repent of it, be forgiven it, and be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. As John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, He, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, the greatest problem in our lives is not the presence of sin, but the lack of confession and repentance. When Jesus is talking in this passage about church discipline, he's not talking about those who make mistakes. He's not talking about accidents. He's not talking even about a sin against which you continue to struggle and yet fall time and time again. Jesus is talking about sin, which you refuse to acknowledge as sin. Jesus is talking about those who deny that sin is there. Those who no longer are struggling against their sins, but are settling into and even identifying with their sins. Church, you stand in a dangerous place if your brothers and sisters are pointing out such sin and you resist. If two or three witnesses surround you not to throw stones, but to offer you counsel, support, and grace, and you refuse. If the church begs your repentance and you declare, I know better, don't judge me. No one has the right to tell me what to do. You stand in a dangerous place. Friends, the expected behavior of one who belongs to Christ and his church is repentance from sin. And submission to the authority of the church. So to refuse such things is to call into question your place in the church. It's to call into question your inclusion in Christ's kingdom. The phrase that Jesus uses here, treat him as a pagan or a tax collector, means recognize that your relationship with the unrepentant one has fundamentally changed. We are to pray for and to reach to him or her with the same love and compassion which we would show to pagans and tax collectors. But we do so now in the hope that there might be repentance, that there might be reconciliation to God, that there might be a return to the community of God. However, until that time, Jesus says the relationship has fundamentally changed. Treat them no longer as a brother or sister, but as a pagan and tax collector. Friends, understand the church has been granted the authority of Christ himself in making such declarations. 
we find here that the church is God's embassy on earth. It declares and it declares and disciplines citizens of the kingdom. You know, we all know that an embassy, if you're traveling abroad, an embassy is an outpost of a country that is set up in a foreign land. And the job of that embassy is both to represent the homeland to the foreign land, but also the job of the embassy is to validate the citizenship of those who live or travel in that foreign land. So if while you're traveling in a foreign land, you lose your passport, where do you go? The embassy. Because the embassy could could help you with a lost passport or an expired passport because the embassy possesses the authority to declare whether you're actually a citizen of the country that you claim as your own. Now, the word embassy is related to the word ambassador because they both come from the Latin word ambactus, meaning servant. So an embassy is a servant of the country which it serves, which it represents. And an ambassador is a servant of the country who he represents. So again, their authority is submitted to the authority of the country and the government that they represent. But what happens when a servant, a citizen, or an ambassador of a country persists in defiance of authority of that, their homeland? What happens when, despite pleas otherwise, she refuses to recognize and submit to the law of her government? What happens when her questionable actions reflect badly upon the kingdom she represents, causing the citizens of that foreign land to start to call into question the goodness of that kingdom? This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. If it gets to the point, it may be that the embassy is no longer able to verify the citizenship of that person, that the church cannot in good conscience renew the passport, cannot stand behind her profession before a watching world until there is a repentance, until there is return. Because, friends, this is the very authority and the responsibility that Christ has delegated to his church. As I noted when we studied Matthew chapter 16 together a couple weeks ago, in Matthew chapter 16, we find for the first time, the word church used in the Gospels. And it's only used twice in all four of the Gospels. Matthew 16, and here again in Matthew 18. And in both instances, friends, Jesus is teaching about the authority of his church. He's teaching about the authority of his church as his embassy to declare inclusion and exclusion from the kingdom, to identify who are the kingdom citizens. Matthew 16, just after Jesus told Peter that he was going to build his ecclesia, his church, on Peter's confession, Jesus says in Matthew 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then today we heard Jesus use almost word for word this same language in Matthew 18, 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So, friends, there are only two uses of the word ecclesia, which is church in the Gospels, both of them on the lips of Jesus Christ, both of them speaking about the authority that he is giving to his church as an embassy of his kingdom to bind and to loose, 
to declare, yes, this is in fact a member, a citizen of my kingdom, or this is not, in fact, a member, a citizen of my kingdom. These parallel passages both emphasize that the church stands as God's embassy to the world, binding and loosing ambassadors, citizens of the kingdom. Now, when I say that, you need to understand, I'm not saying that the church itself has the authority to include or exclude people. I'm saying that the authority the church has been given is declaratory. The church declares what Christ has done. You know, I say this a lot when it comes to the time to elect new elders. Friends, when you, church, vote for somebody to be an elder, you don't actually make that person an elder. Because no one can make someone a spiritual leader. You as the congregation recognize the authority and the giftedness and the calling that God, God has put on a person's life. And you then declare what you believe God has done and you ask that person to lead and you commit yourself to follow. No one, you can't just walk into the church and declare yourself, hi, hi, I'm here, I'm an elder. Now a leader in this church. I mean, friends, if anyone could just show up and declare himself to be an elder and start throwing his weight around, it would be disastrous. An unrecognized leader is not a spiritual leader. That's a spiritual bully. But in the issues of leadership of the church, we recognize and we declare what God has done in the life of a man. And then we ask that man and we say, we recognize what God himself seems to have bound, what he seems to be doing. Would you lead in this church as an elder? We will submit and follow. We recognize and declare what God has done. And friends, it's the same in membership. A person can't just show up and go, hi, I'm a member of your church. I mean, especially if that person in his or her life has characteristic marks of sin or lacks the habitual marks of a follower of Christ, does not live a life of repentance. Because church, this is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. The responsibility of the church is to judge and discern whether this person is truly an ambassador of Christ, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, a member of Christ's church. Again, the church does not make that person a member of Christ's church. It can only discern and declare what Christ himself has loosed or bound on heaven, the church declares on earth. The church is tasked with judging and declaring whether this person is truly a member of Christ's church or not. And some might immediately protest and go, whoa, Adam, that sounds so judgmental. I mean, just a little while ago in Matthew's gospel, didn't we hear Jesus teach in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged? Now, church, as we studied when we looked at that, and as I always remind you, context is king. And if we were to look at the larger context of that and understand what Jesus is warning against, he there is clearly, unquestionably warning against self-righteous judgment. On the other hand, church, understand that the church is called to righteous right judgment of thoughts, of attitudes, of behavior, of words. In the city of Corinth, the Apostle Paul heard of a man living in unrepentant sexual immorality with his stepmother. And Paul didn't say, oh, don't judge. 
Rather, he commanded in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Church, we are charged with judging, with rightly discerning sinful behaviors, sinful words, sinful attitudes within the church. And Paul's words to that unrepentant sitter in Corinth echo Jesus' words in Matthew 18. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 2, You all are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says, church, if he refuses to repent, the church can no longer keep stamping his passport. The embassy can no longer validate his citizenship. Let him be removed from amongst you. Treat him as you would a tax collector and pagan and pray for his repentance. But the relationship is fundamentally changed. And notice that it's not punitive. It's restorative that he, his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The hope, the prayer, the pleading is that the wanderer would come home, that his spirit would be saved, that the hardened would be softened, that the sinner would repent, that you might gain back your brother, that you might win back your sister. But until that happens, Paul says, it's going to help nobody to pretend. It helps nobody to pretend. It doesn't benefit the sick. To make him think that he's well. Because they'll never get treatment. And it is our shame if we deny such hypocrisy before a watching world. Because this is what a watching world simply finds unbelievable. The church is charged to declare on earth what Christ has declared in heaven. And friends, the church does so not on its own. Jesus promises these matters are too weighty for mere humans. I superintend these. Jesus closes in Matthew 18, starting in verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That last verse, that's our favorite. Oh, only a couple people showed up for prayer meeting verse. Two or three are gathered. We're all good. Friends, it's not actually about prayer meeting. It's about church discipline. Jesus says every matter is to be established by two or three witnesses with the presence of God himself leading, guiding, informing, inspiring. Jesus promises his very presence and power as the church wields this staggering authority of binding and loosing the awesome responsibility of reconciling by the power of the spirit. Church, our unity And the power and authority to reconcile with one another. The power to restore an erring brother. To declare him forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. The power and authority given to the ecclesia, to the church, is the greatest witness that we ambassadors have to a watching world. Our authority and power to reconcile a straying sheep back to the rest of the flock. Our authority to declare sins forgiven in the name of Jesus Christ. Reconciliation is the most awesome and visible and tangible witness to the reality and the presence and the power of Jesus Christ among us.
Christ says these things serve as a visible witness of his promise. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Friends, Christ is amongst his church when such fearsome and awesome responsibility is undertaken so that it is never taken lightly. However, such responsibility, if it's neglected, church is neglected to our peril. We put our walk with the Lord and our witness before a walking world in grave danger. If our authority remains unsubmitted to a higher authority, we are left to do what's right in our own eyes. And it leaves us as individuals on the way that leads to death. And it will result in a corrupted church that an unbelieving world will. Church family, this is heavy. This was not an easy sermon. I wrestled with this all week and late into last night. Because we are all guilty of resisting the right and the good and the just authority of Christ in our lives. And Christ is calling every one of us right now to repentance. How are you right now resisting the right authority of Christ in your life? For the salvation of your soul, for the health of this community, for the glory of God's name before a watching world, how is the Lord calling you to repent and to submit yourself to His right authority today? Oh, Father, these are not light matters. These are terrible, terrible and weighty matters. And they weigh heavily upon me. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for our failures. Forgive us for not submitting to you and to the authority that you've rightly given. Forgive us for resisting. For claiming that we know best. And for pridefully foolishly, clinging to our wisdom. Oh Lord, open our eyes. Oh Lord, open our ears to hear our brothers and our sisters in their cry. Open our hearts to one another and submit our hearts to you. That before a watching world, we might bring you glory, we might bring you honor, and we might bring you praise now and forevermore. In the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. Please stand and join us for one more song, please.